Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest is Dr. Mark Lopes. Dr. Lopes, along with Roger Coleman and Edward J. Cremata, recently published an article regarding the use of x-rays in chiropractic practice. Dr. Lopes is here to talk with us about why this paper is important. So without any further ado, Dr. Mark Lopes. Hello, Dr. Lopes. Thank you for joining me again. Hi. It's good to be here. So we're just going to dive right into this topic, um, talking mostly about radiology. Um, it seems, especially of late, there's been a lot of, of stuff where I think maybe people don't realize that, that there's a fight going on um, regarding radiology. Um, in some places, people have lost their rights to radiology. Um, I've seen some stuff lately where, that we were uncovering where we were looking at um, the movement to try to eliminate x-rays in the U.S. and where it was even coming from. It was some interesting stuff. So um, I'm going to start by having you talk about that and kind of like where this where this fight came from and, and how it's being fought and, and what risk there really is to the, the practitioner uh, of potentially losing x-ray rights if we don't fight the fight. Yeah, I think the, the average everyday chiropractor is probably not paying a lot of attention to this, at least the ones that I talk to. They really have no idea. Um, Interestingly, too, if you if if a lot of times uh, I'll have conversations with my own patients and they're just floored by the whole idea that that, you know, we would be denied the ability to take x-rays on patients, They at least the ones that come and see me. So um, it kind of doesn't pass the smell test in, in a lot of ways. Uh, it seems very commonsensical that before you do anything to the spine you want to see what's going on there um you know the problem starts with radiation fear really and it started with radiation fear back when they first um made you know sort of guidelines on the use of radiation uh back in the 50s uh, there was a lot of fear of the fallout from nuclear testing and um, being a child of the 50s, I remember hiding under my desk and practicing, you know, in case of nuclear war and things like that was going to make some difference. Um, and so there was a lot of, uh, there's, there's, there's just an awful lot of radiation fear at that time. And, and there was a lot of unknown. And, and at that time, some, you know, some of the results from the nuclear bombs in Nagasaki and Hiroshima we're really starting to be uh, come forth because we're talking, you know, enough time after uh, the World War II ended. And um, so what they did is they basically just looked at the really high levels of exposures and noticed that when people lived farther away, they had less cancer risk than people who lived closer to the epicenter of the bombs. And But we're talking really high levels of radiation in those cases. Um, what they did was they, they developed a theory called the linear no threshold theory, which means they just drew a line down the graph of the frequency of cancers from exposure at very high levels. And as they were farther away and had less exposure, the risk would go down. And so the line would go down. And then 
there was no studies really of very low risks. I'm sorry, very low exposure levels. Um, and when we talk about medical x-rays or chiropractic x-rays, we're talking about levels that are so low that, you know, the, the ability to really study um, the effects of these things would take millions and millions of people over long periods of time. And so they just don't do it. It's really a complicated scenario to prove the risks of x-rays at very low levels. In fact, it, it has never been done. Um, it's, it's still a theoretical basis, a model basis, but basically at the very low levels of, of exposure, like we're talking about for medical x-rays and things, um, they just drew a straight line all the way down to zero and assumed that every single dose would have a harmful effect. And, uh, that would be cumulative as well. And so they, regardless of how low the dose was, was they figured that's the way that was going to be. Well, there's a lot of ways. First of all, there's a lot of different kinds of radiation and there's a lot of different kinds of, um, potential models for those effects. Um, there's a threshold model, which is basically saying when you reach a certain level, it becomes cancer or risk, risky for health, including stochastic risks of cancer. Um, and if you get below that level, it doesn't. So that's a threshold level relative, rather than a linear no threshold level, which is the prevailing model that they go by now in terms of uh, assessing risks of potential risks of radiation. So, <clears throat> but there's another model called the, the hormesis model, which is a, more of a J shaped kind of a thing. Um, or it, it basically, you start out with a little, very, very little exposure. And it, instead of it having a negative effect, it'll, it may have a slightly positive effect. And then when you take the, a little bit more of an exposure, then then the risk would even go down more and would have more potentially beneficial effects for the person exposed. And then after it gets to a certain level, it starts to cross that line again where it's not um, healthy for you any longer and it starts to create problems and it reaches a, a threshold where now it creates problems. So this is very similar to something like sunshine. If you went out, which is a type of radiation, if you went out in, in the sun just for a moment, it wouldn't have a lot of beneficial effects, but it wouldn't have any negative. But if you went out there just a little bit longer, you'd produce some vitamin D and you do things like this. It would stimulate some of your natural um, processes that are good for you. And it's part of your immune system. Um, and then, and if you do too much, then it would, it would go the other way. So, um, you know, uh, Nutritional supplements work the same way, uh, you know, any number of things that you can think of, uh, even other forms of uh, moving energy. Radiation is basically just moving energy. So, you know, if you think of sound, uh, some, some nice Mozart would probably be good for you. But if you, you had, if the sound was too high, it'd be bad for you. Or water, uh, you know, water waves and moving water is is at low levels is probably good for you, but at high levels, it'll kill you. So there's, there's a lot of different ways in which moving energy is hormetic. Mm -hmm. So 
that's kind of the beginning of all of this was just the radiation fear. And unfortunately, the model was favored because of that fear, which was so uh, prevalent in the 50s. Um, and it's the, the default position because governmental agencies don't want to um, be at risk of uh, saying that something is okay when there may be some risk and the, and there's no real studies to, to, you know, to support that or very few. Well, what we do see <clears throat> is that very low level of very low levels of, um, uh, exposures do have some, there are, there are data that show that the hormetic model is, is probably more accurate for, um, low, very low level exposures. What we're talking about here is, you know, in, in the, in the, the Japanese bombing scenario, um, those survivors, there's very little argument that over a hundred millisieverts of, you know, a hundred to, to 200 millisieverts. Um, there's, there's not too much, um, there's not too much argument that, that there, there's some evidence for a, that being worse for those, that population and that there were some increased cancers when you get above that, but below hundred millisieverts, there's really no, uh, there's really no evidence to support the, the risks that, that are, um, proposed by the linear no threshold theory. So, you know, and when we take an x-ray, um, we're talking about like a lumbar x-ray might be at the most probably 1.5 millisieverts. Our background levels in the United States are maybe three millisieverts. And so, I mean, we have, we get radiation in, um, beer, bananas, tobacco, you know, mm -hmm. uh, our, our foods, our drinks, um, the rocks in the ground, cosmic energy, you know, all that. So, we we evolved as a species in a an a, a radiation a more radiation rich environment than than we are now over the course of a million years all that radiation is kind of dissipating uh the half life of those rocks and all those sources of uh radiation has diminished substantially so if you think about it we we obviously have defense mechanisms you know, in our body that are, are triggered when we're exposed and how we clean up um, mutations and things like that. And so the idea that a very low level may just stimulate your, your immune system is not, uh, it's, it's not a, a far-fetched idea. It's, it's, it's known to be the case. So the bottom line is you live in this you know, three millisieverts a year on average in the United States background exposure and our x-rays aren't reaching a background level. And if you live in a place where there might be six millisieverts a year, there's, there's, there's no evidence that that is any worse for you. So uh, that's the basis for the entire beginnings of it. But then came the insurance companies and guidelines, evidence-based guidelines, because people don't want to pay for care if people aren't, you know, if they're not using 
evidence-based kind of where the, the insurance company can be com- comfortable with the idea that this is a valid a- approach to healthcare. So they start with the evidence-based guidelines. The unfortunate part of that is the evidence is all based on a frequentist kind of a, an approach, which means if you don't show that on average for a large population that something is is proven to do a certain thing, then then they don't consider there to be any evidence. And uh, unfortunately, that way of looking at things isn't really practical because we don't use evidence that way in practice. And uh, so this this fight began, you know, back in the 90s, uh, where initially the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research in the United States was the first that I was aware of, where they came forward with um, a proclamation that x-rays were unnecessary for people with low back pain. And um, so they, they pretty much lump anybody treating back pain patients together. So they, they, they consider all practitioners to be under the same guidelines. And it's the same with the guidelines that are the, the uh, prevailing guidelines in chiropractic. They don't differentiate between types of practitioners. So the same uh, guidelines that a medical doctor who doesn't use uh, chiropractic adjustments, you know, manual or otherwise, they're not putting forces into the spine to try to correct problems, biomechanical problems and things. Um, we're held to the same guidelines they are, even though they're not even touching the patient. So um, we recently um, decided to uh, try to do something to um, level the playing field a little bit. And so we published a commentary in the journal Dose Response with uh, the help of Roger Coleman and Ed Edward J. Kamada um, in October of 2021. And it was called Radiography and Clinical Decision-Making in Chiropractic. And basically, we called, we argued for separate guidelines for chiropractors versus medical doctors, for instance. Um, We pointed out the reasons for that. And we talked about load tolerances of injured spinal tissues and and how that raises different criteria for the use of x-rays than in medical practice where they're not going to do anything, not going to put any additional loads on the structure through their treatment. Um, So we pointed out in in that publication that basically there's no proof that low-level radiation like we use, and it's considered very low-level exposure, um, that, that, that's harmful. Um, every, every article that basically is published that, that talks about risk of low, very low level is based on that linear no-threshold model. And so they're estimating the risks based on uh, very high-level exposures and extrapolating down to very, very low. And then they look at how many 
people were x-rayed and how many cancers would probably come from that and whatnot. And so it's all of those <clears throat> conclusions when you read the, because there's plenty of science supporting the linear no threshold theory that's been published. It's just all based on the model that is really being challenged. Um, there are a lot of phys x-ray physicists and scientists that are challenging the linear threshold model and, and asking for it to be cast aside because it's really not useful for the very low level exposure level, uh, rates. So, um, you know, in that process, a, if a person is going to use X, the, the, the other, the other basis for, um, the, that sort of the essence of the debate within chiropractic, because we have a, a minority of chiropractors or academicians in chiropractic that um, or policymakers in chiropractic that are behind this. Uh, it's called the red flags guidelines. And basically um, red flags uh, are conditions that when the patient presents that you might, cons the only reasons that you would consider using uh, x-rays for treatment of the spine, uh, it would be if they have fracture, you know, potential fracture, dislocation, pathology, infection, or prolonged steroid use. Those are the primary ones. Although the red flags really have, no it's not based on any research. It's just based on a consensus. And if you look in the literature, the red flags um, conditions are, are really, there's a, a varied list of them depending on which publication. So they, they haven't really settled on what those red flags really are, but that's the guidelines that we're, we are uh, forced to consider in practice. Um, so if someone has a suspicion of any of those conditions, fracture, dislocation, pathology, infection, prolonged steroid use, and that sort of thing, or if they're over the age of 65, then you, you have the green light to take an x-ray. Um, however, in chiropractic, the vast majority of patients who come in are not, um, they do not have those types of uh, preconditions to worry about. Most of them are just coming in for spinal pain or numbness or some kind of musculoskeletal, neuromusculoskeletal kind of issue. So following the radiographic guidelines best based on the red flags just limits the, the ability to, to examine the patient thoroughly with the inclusion of radiographs because um, there's a fear that you'll cause more harm than good because of the radiation exposure, which, which we now know is um, a specious argument and it doesn't really have any basis. And the other part of that is they worry about expense, um, of course, because when, especially when insurance companies are involved. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that is no one has ever proven that the use of x-rays makes a difference to a patient's treatment in chiropractic. In other words, there's really never been any studies, well, up to October of when we published this, and I made the comment in this article that we weren't aware of any studies that 
um, that had been done that compare um, either adverse events or benefits of chiropractic care in patients with radiographs to chiropractic care without radiographs. And so recently there was a, a study published where they did do that. Um, unfortunately, they didn't talk about how the x-rays were used. Um, and when you look at the way x-rays were used, they were used with the prevailing guidelines, which is basically um, to only take x-rays if they were red flags. And so they took red flags on a minority of the, I mean, they took x-rays on the minority of patients that presented with low back pain. And then they looked at the difference between those patients who had x-rays and those who didn't. And they said, well, there was really no difference in outcomes. And so as if the x-rays themselves would have made a difference. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's interesting that they didn't even notice that. And it be, has become sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, you develop this guideline that says you can't take x-rays to use for biomechanical reasons. You only can do it to use, look for red flags conditions. And so then they, they only take the x-rays for that and they don't actually use them to guide treatment. And then they say, well, there is no difference between the outcomes of treatment when using x-rays versus when you not using x-rays. And so unless they, and I, so I wrote a letter to the editor. In fact, I just got a, um, that was published in December, I think, in the Journal of Chiropractic Manual Therapies. And I just wrote a letter to the editor that just got finally approved with all the edits and everything, uh, you know, just basically just saying, look, there was no description whatsoever on how you use the x-rays to influence treatment. So are we to expect that treatment was different in one group than the other or was the same? They, and the fact that they don't even describe that tells you, you know, that basically they didn't use them to influence treatment. Yeah, what's weird to me is that what you're describing as evidence-based medicine is basically based on mathematical projections and some conjecture and not really a valid measurement of what's truly happening and reality. And well, yeah, it's kind of weird. That's, that's because in order to study this very low-level exposure, you'd have to have a million patients that you followed for 20 years. Right. And the same thing with... Okay, so let's say we were going to devise a, a, a study to, um, to, dis, to determine whether x-rays made a difference in chiropractic. And we've talked about this many times about doing a study like this. Um, the Gonstead um, Research Department for the Clinical Studies, Gonstead Clinical Studies Society, Roger Coleman and I have discussed this no, a number of times. And we have, there's a, a significant challenge. Let me, let me just say this. Okay, so... Let's set up an, a, a deal. Uh, so, David, you're uh, an excellent chiropractor. You've Gonstead work. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a Gonstead practitioner myself as well. So let's decide that you and I are going to take two groups of patients and see which one does better, one without x-rays and one with x-rays, okay? So, you know, you get, I don't know, just 30 patients even, and I'll take 30 patients, and we'll both treat them and we'll measure the outcomes. Well, First of all, you'd have to balance out the groups pretty well, which means you'd have to have a pretty good number of people that you went through. But also, who's to say that you're just not better at treating patients than me? 
and you know you you just do a better job than me you know because now we, we can't be sure that it isn't just the difference between two different doctors right? right and then how about if we say this then i'll be the doctor and i'll take care of one set of patients that use extra that, that i use x-rays on and one set that i don't use x-rays on okay well, what if I'm used to using x-rays and I, and I rely on that as a part of my treatment? And then when, you, when, I'm, when I don't have x-rays, I'm at a disadvantage because my form of approach is based on biomechanical evidence from the x-rays. And so if, if the x-ray people do better, you really can't say it was because of that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it could be like, for instance, let's take somebody who never uses x-rays and is used to treating people without x-rays and then you give them x-rays to use and they don't know how to use them yeah it won't be better so either way you have all this bias that could be built in i mean you could do a crossover approach you know uh but it's just it's really difficult to to design a study properly that would that would really prove one way or the other or heavily support one way or the other so um that's 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 an ongoing problem so we're left with the idea that first of all you know um if x-rays were going to be clinically useful then and and, you know and make a difference clinically then we would have to show that there's a difference in outcomes that's a and in order to do you know you, you sort of try to make a bio biological a biologically plausible argument right and this is what we did in the, in the study i mean in the uh, commentary that we published and we started with you know the idea behind alignment and health um there there are um a lot of studies now that that demonstrate the relationship between uh healthy radiographic parameters and the, and the related quality of of life um, and, and so we know that, um, and a lot of them are based on surgical outcomes and things of people with really severe problems, but the idea, and there, there are authors out there that, that have looked into these, uh, issues. Um, and we understand now that balanced alignment is a major contributor to spinal health. Um, and that there are con- compensatory mechanisms that have been very well studied that when you have malalignment in one area that it affects other areas and um, from the from the knees to the skull and so um, it's a significant percentage of people with these deformities never seek treatment anyway but for those that do you know, most of them aren't treated with surgery and non-operative treatment can often be beneficial. So um, one form of that is chiropractic care. In, and when we, when we talk about this, when we talked about this in our article, we basically said, especially with uh, high velocity, low amplitude, uh, spinal manipulation or adjustments when you're putting a force in there you're affecting the structure and we're you know 
you can talk about ideal spine models and variations due to age and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you can talk about the adverse effects of, of malalignment and, and, and how that leads to other problems. Um, but unless you firmly understand the biomechanics of what happens to a joint when it's injured and what happens to it when you adjust it or manipulate it, then it, if, if you get into that discussion, it becomes self-evident that you want to see the structure before you do it because mm-hmm. imaging gives you the evidence of the physiologic age of the problem, how long it's been there, um, the types of tra- trauma that likely historically were experienced by that individual, and an overall record of the state of how that spine is doing at that time. Um you know, whether or not there's any bone density issues, if, what's wrong with the architecture, if there's changes in the soft tissue that you can see, you know, the disc space size and things of that nature. Um, so you know what it is you're dealing with when you put your hands on somebody. And when you apply manual therapy vectors of force to the spine, you're, you're, you're trying to deform the structure in order to unbuckle the the motion segments that have buckled into a deformity and that's this is this isn't my opinion the triano uh and herzog both published some uh kind of guidelines or or descriptions of what what the treatment is and what what we're trying to treat and basically um triano described the the biomechanics uh, of spinal buckling as a as a model of the manipulable lesion or what we might call a subluxation. Um, basically, he said that the biomechanical patterns of of how you adjust somebody form a, a, a system characterizing your manual procedures that Basically, you're trying to unbuckle motion segments that have been buckled through forces and distorted through through adverse forces. And uh, Herzog said that that uh, deformations of the spine, um, you know, we're, that's what we're applying manual therapy vectors of force to 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 deform the spinal structure. And if you don't you know, in a, in a, in a way opposite the injuries that they've received and the, and the settling after the injuries. And, um, you know, uh, Kirkaldi Willis talked about this a long time ago too, where, uh, I believe it was in the, in the eighties, but he published, uh, you know, a, a text on, I think it was low back pain, but he talked about how the way these misalignments occur is there's a load the load is excessive, the ligaments can't handle it, it strains it in a certain direction, and then over time, of the weight, with the weight of the body, it settles into a position until it meets resistance. And so if for some reason it stretched the ligaments in a certain direction, then the vertebra would settle into that direction and then heal in that direction. And that's why we see these misalignments. And that's basically a very simple explanation of why they're there. And if you can't see those before you adjust then, you know, then you're at a disadvantage in terms of if you're trying to actually correct those. But the difference in approach is that many chiropractors really aren't trying to correct those. Right. 
you know, they're, they're based, basically their approach is primarily based on symptoms like pain and they use spinal manipulative therapies in a general sense, kind of many times in a shotgun approach where they just sort of, you know, left and right, you on the low back, left and right, you rotate on the neck and then, you know, anterior dorsal, you up the the thoracic spine just to mobilize everything and, and try to see if they can help you. And Hey, uh, millions of people have been helped with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so I don't, I don't have the, I don't, I don't take, take that as a negative. I just, they don't have the experience of day to day looking at a biomechanical ex- assessment of x-rays. If you, if you look at x-rays every single day with most of your patients, you start to realize what you miss if you don't have those films. Right, because what I've always said is, and I'm just going to pick a random number, but let's say that 25% of the time for my patients, the x-ray is the, is the um, deciding factor. It gives me the information I absolutely must have. The problem is I don't know which 25% are the ones that makes a difference on. So that means i got to shoot x-rays on everybody to find that 25%. But once I start doing that, I start finding all kinds of things I might not have expected. And that's, so then that's not to say that the 75, the other 75%, that it's not of some value, whether it's um, reinforcing my line of drive. So I have confidence in my thrust, knowing that I'm using the right table. Um, there's still some benefit, even if it's not the deciding factor. And you don't know that till you start shooting them on people that you might not otherwise shoot them on. Yeah. You don't, you don't know what's there. And, th- and they use that argument against, you know, the other side the, the minority of, you know, and, and the reason I say they're a minority is because there was a, a, a large survey done asking chiropractors whether they felt, you know, x-rays were important. And by far and away, you know, the vast majority of them said yes. Uh, it's, 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 it's a relatively vocal minority of people that are trying to, you know, it, for those that aren't aware out there in, in British Columbia, they recently, uh, you know, ruled the, the board up there recently ruled that chiropractors shouldn't be taking x-rays. They, they lost x-rays in the Netherlands and there's some efforts that have been started in other places like here in the United States to, to try to push in that direction. And, you know, they have this uh, choosing wisely, um, uh, you know, push for the chiropractic. Uh, it's not just in the chiropractic, but the, the, the uh, American Chiropractic Association and, yeah. and uh, it's medical as well. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, they have these buzzwords like choosing wisely. So, and that's not just aimed at the doctors, that's aimed at the people. And they're trying to educate the public. It's like, hey, choose wisely. Don't, don't let anybody take an x-ray of you. You know, we are on the verge of new um, technology that's going to reduce x-ray exposure by 400 times. Right. Yep. And so um, when we look at the idea behind, um, you know, when we put that into perspective, we already have very little... uh, if any, we don't really have any solid evidence that that x-rays at that level are bad for you. First of all, mm-hmm. we have some evidence that um, that x-rays at, at that level are good for some some conditions like prevent some cancers. You know, there's people who are being treated <clears throat> for like shoulder. There was there was a study that I included in in our that I reported on as part of our commentary uh, that came out in October and that 
there were, uh, like for instance, there were there were um, twenty four studies um, regarding pediatric diagnostic X ray radiation, and this meta analysis review, and this was from two thousand to twenty nineteen. 24 studies found no increased risk of all cancers, leukemias, and brain tumors after prenatal x-ray or, or CT exposures. Um, yeah. You know, uh, there, there's uh, the technology that that is um, the ultra-sensitive image technology um, that, that's coming, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's going to reduce exposure by like 400 times lower than what we already have the very low level that the current technology allows. So, I mean, at that point, uh, the, the, the exposure levels will be so low that the concern over radiation risk will be, we will even have less practical relevance. It's like yeah. the, the, the hypothetical risk thing. So let's say we just take the risk out. Okay. We, we have enough in a, uh, uh, we have enough evidence to suggest that if, if you just look at it from a standpoint of, and you know, I'm, I'm not, we are not promoting screening everybody with x-rays. No. What we're saying here is that we take a, a bit of a different look, a more practical look. And in, in the, uh, one of the things that I felt was maybe, uh, I don't know, more important uh, uh, points that we made in our article was about the way we uh, interpret data from studies. And when we look at guidelines that are all based on frequentist approaches, which is the, the null hypothesis, you know, for instance, you might have a null hypothesis where you say uh, there's no difference between the outcomes of treatment when using x-rays versus when not using x-rays, okay, for mm-hmm. chiropractic care. And then if you design a study, you hope to reject that null hypothesis or decline to reject it. And, and there, there's that one study that I told you about that was poorly done, done, they could not reject the null hypothesis because they didn't see any difference. Okay. Well, that's talking about the, on average, the difference between, you know, in a, in a subset, you know, in a, in a, in a group of people and, what we talked about in the article was that there's in, in practice, that is not how information is, is um, utilized to, to help form clinical decisions. And there have been uh, several different articles published saying that using a frequentist approach, that's the, you know, what are the frequency or the association, the statistical testing? Uh, it tip- typically measures the impact of an intervention um, in a specific sample of patients. And then, and then it reports out a general average of the treatment effect, um, you know, for all of the participants as, as the main finding. And then it doesn't consider the relationship between, you know, individual uh, patient details or like the skill of the practitioner or um, any of those kinds of vital information. Like for instance, uh, what, what that patient comes in. So for instance, 
asking the question, you know, is there association between findings on the x-ray and contemporaneous bouts of pain? And the answer is no. Okay. Right. But that's really not a good clinical way to frame that. People walk into your right. office telling you whether they're in pain or not in pain and what their symptoms are and all of that. Mm-hmm. So that question really isn't that relevant. Um, and I can see where they say, well, if it doesn't tell you where the symptoms are coming from, then why are you using it? Well, there's a lot of other potential reasons why you're using it. And uh, so if you if you look at it from what we call what's called a Bayesian principle, which is a, a type of way in which you you there's you know, I'm not a statistician. I don't have a Ph.D. in in statistics or, or research, but I do have someone that has helped me understand this uh, quite a bit. And that's uh, Ed Edward J. Kramata, who is the son of my former partner, Ed Kramata. And um, Ed, uh, the son, he, he works with us. He's our, he's our, our statistician and, and whatnot. He has a PhD in statistics from USC and he's, he's, um, I mean, he's, he worked at Stanford in, in the, uh, 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 the Brookings Institute for eight years and he's done research on education and uh, he's, this, this, this individual is one of the smartest people I've ever met, but he's also very practical and very easy to talk to and understand. And, you know, basically um, the way, the way the Bayesian principle works is that you have a set of prior facts and information that you then base the information on to make a decision. And it's the way clinicians make decisions. It's, it's been pointed out in the literature. Authors have written about this, that, that that's how practitioners generally proceed. They, they get a set of conditions first. They say, okay, you got pain in this area. You've had a history of trauma in this area. Um, you know, you have a history of osteoarthritis in your family. You, um, you, you know, and then, then that you examine the person and you go, oh, well, you have swelling over this area. You have tenderness over this area. You have asymmetrical appearance of your structure over this area. And so you have all these, you have all these prior findings that are what Bayesian, uh, you know, principles are is basically priors that you then, you, 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 it's, it formulates a certain belief that maybe an x-ray of that area would be useful. And so clinically speaking, the idea of the frequentist null hypothesis way of applying evidence to practice is, is uh, you know, if you're going to use a diagnostic test, you clinicians regularly use a Bayesian framework for determining whether they're going to order a diagnostic test, not just chiropractors. I mean, you know, any kind of clinician. Um, so when you take into these, these, these other factors are taken to an account, these priors, it, in, it, it, it increases the proper, the probability that a radiograph would be giving you some clinically relevant information. For instance, in certain situations, we know that like spondyloolisthesis is common in the lumbosacral region. Well, if you're going to put a force into a structure, you certainly wouldn't want to put a P to A, a posterior to anterior force right over the top of a, of a, of a anteriorly slipped vertebrae. Right. Or, you know, or if you have 
rotational distortions and, and buckling, or if you have flexion distortions and buckling, you don't want to put those kinds of forces into those areas. And so, um, you know, the idea that we would, um, uh, the idea that we would use more of a Bayesian framework, it, it makes sense. And so what we're, what we have is we have guidelines that are completely based on frequentist approaches that is not a usable form when you apply it clinically, but it's supposed to be your clinically uh, relevant evidence base. And, it, and it's why, you know, pretty much all of medicine, there's very little of what they do percentage-wise that's evidence-based for the same reason. So, um, you know, those, those are things that I think we need to rethink in, in, in chiropractic especially, and that is, you know, uh, if you're going to apply forces, you should know what's there. The other thing is, is that we re-reviewed the literature on the, um, on the load capacity of healthy structure, and then we looked at load tests and force measurements of, um, of typical HVLA adjustments and uh you know what what we found is that some of the higher levels of uh like lumbar adjustments and thoracic adjustments and things are higher than the um highest tolerance levels of healthy tissues so if you look at say for instance um force measurements that might be as low as 41 newtons to as much as 1400 newtons in terms of uh, adjustments. So if you do like uh, a, a, a P to A lumbar Gonstead adjustment, some of those forces are up 1300, 1400 newtons. And when you look at uh, the, the, the biomechanics of, of an injured tissue, um, Levels below that, like levels of 1,200 newtons repeatedly uh, applied to the lumbar spine in segments in the laboratory of, of non-injured tissues will cause a spondyloolisthesis. <laughs> so, you know, when we, when we look at the idea that some of the types of adjustments that can be used actually exceed the levels that, that, that are recommendable, um, most of them are within the tolerance of healthy tissues, but the other thing to be considered is peak loading uh, force um, uh, tolerance for a structure is diminished substantially once it's been injured. That's why people, when they keep, you know, one of the, uh, I, I know one of the objections to using an older x-ray on a patient, people are like, well, if you adjust me all that time, how come you're still using this old x-ray? You know, doesn't it make changes? Well, it does, but also when things get re-injured, they tend to re-injure in a similar way many times because, or most times, because that is the direction that it's weakest. And so when a load is applied, it's more likely going to distort in the previously distorted direction than some new direction. Um, it's like a twig that once you, or a piece of metal, and in fact, they call it the same thing when, you know, to metal, they call it creep deformation mm. and the, the, uh, the, phys the, the, the engineers became bioengineers and they call the ligament distortion creep deformation too. 
And so if you bend a piece of a, a clothes hanger in a certain direction and then you straighten it and then you put it a force on it, it's more likely going to bend in that same weak direction as it had before. And so, um, so these tissues are, are now weaker than they were before. And so we have, we have the, 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 the idea of all we really have as far as load tolerance is based on the, the, damages that you know tolerances of tissues that are in a laboratory most of the time it's with pig pig segments of structure that they put forces on um we don't really and that's there's really nothing in the cervical spine except um except uh deformities that occur after whiplash and things which they kind of use a general saying you know like a general idea that whiplash injuries slightly above six miles per hour is kind of kind of an average threshold for mild injuries so we don't really know what that is right but mm-hmm. uh at, at any rate we have enough evidence to to say that some of the types of more forceful adjustments which can be very helpful in many people can also be potentially higher than force tolerances of certain tissues in certain areas of your spine. So if you're going to use uh, HVLA specific, you know, types of, or, or even non-specific, but if you're going to use loads that, that are high velocity, low amplitude, spinal adjustment manipulations, then without an x-ray, you're at a disadvantage to be able to tell where previous injuries have occurred. So it just seems like, uh, we don't really have the evidence that this that that's risky to take x-rays. We have evidence that it could be risky to, to give adjustments to people without x-rays. And we have also, um, you know, ability to then make goals to help people correct their structure through other means as well, whether it's um, cervical extension traction or, you know, other other kinds of postural changes, exercises, and, and other kinds of ways of putting forces into the structure to help and, and to show the patient, hey, look what's going on here. You need to be motivated to correct this um, because patients need that motivation sometimes. So there's so many ways in which this could be helpful that this, the few ways in which it's potentially not helpful or risky is, is really a, a minuscule issue in my view. Yeah, and I th- I think you're right that the uh, the powers that be are kind of going after the patients because I don't think they're go- they think that they're going to convince any chiropractors taking X-rays that they should stop, but they know they can go after the patients because I've even encountered this in my wife's dental practice. I shot X-rays for her for a while, and we would get parents who didn't want to shoot X-rays because they were afraid of the radiation. And so my wife finally looked it up and found that a dental X-ray is the same amount of radiation that you get from eating a banana. So she would ask yeah. them. Have you given your kid a banana? Well, yeah. Have you ever put them on an airplane? Like it's many times more, but that rationale doesn't, most of those parents are not really swayed by that argument. And so it's much more of an emotional thing. And so they know that they're the weak spot. If they go after the patients, they can give it the patients to refuse our x-rays and to make it hard on us that way. And I think that's one of the dangers in all this is that we have to be prepared and know the information you've been talking about to be able to counteract it some, to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, referred to in many publications now as radiophobia and that mm-hmm. it's an irrational, you know, radiophobia and, and that uh, it gets in the way of the potential benefit 
you know, and sometimes life-saving benefit of taking an x-ray. Um, so uh, I, what, what I hope and what we hoped was that people that are in positions of influence, like in schools or in, in technique clubs, uh, you know, that have relationships with uh, chiropractic radiologists. Um, and I've actually had uh, a, two different chiropractic radiologists um, that um, have, you know, basically I, let me know that they were very happy that, that we published this and, and have, they have concerns that originally these guidelines started out as sort of an aid to practice and now they've become political. And they have, yeah. but um, if we could get people to um, grasp the information that's in this article that we put out, um, so if 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 th- those of you that aren't you know familiar with it, it's called uh, radiography and clinical decision making in chiropractic, and it was published on October thirteenth, twenty one, and that's myself, Mark Lopes, Roger Coleman, and um, and Edward Kamada were the authors, and it's in, it's in um, the, the the journal Dose Response. Um, but if you if you haven't you know read that or some of the other things they have there, in fact, that whole journal is part of their mission is to debunk the the radio radiograph uh, radiation fear for a lot of reasons. Um, they use the examples like in Fukushima with the mm-hmm. disaster in Fukushima and, and how they freaked everybody out and, and moved everybody out and did all this kind of stuff and how much it cost on it. And in reality, they're not seeing any of the negative effects. They thought there was some, some of that that washed up in Oregon and in places like that where, you know, they were freaking out that there was, you know, the salmon had it in it and everything else. And, uh, uh, some, somebody said you could swim in there for like six hours and not have the same amount as one dental x-ray, which is, like you said, <laughs> equivalent to yeah. a banana. So it's like people are just so freaked out by it, you know. Um, but they're actually using radiation to, like there was another study that on shoulder problems, and they were using low-dose uh, x-ray on shoulder problems, and they had a large number of women over a long period of time that they did that with no increased risk of breast cancer or anything like that. And they're using the radiation to actually stimulate healing in their shoulder. And there's Mm. a lot of those kinds of studies that are being done now. Radiation is a different, different animal now in terms of treatment and how they do things. It used to be just, you know, uh, something that we all feared so much. And, and, you know, it's, it's out there trying to say, I mean, pretty much everybody who has, uh, uh, you know, cancer, they consider using radiography to, to, you know, to stop the cancer growth and, and the, the effects of the, and those are high levels. They're just basically yes. targeted to try to kill certain tissues. So, yeah. you know, at high levels, it does one thing at very low levels, it does another. And that's the same thing as most of your vitamins. Yeah. I was just about to say the same thing about the radio, the radiation for cancer is that again, it goes back to the mentality that that is high dose radiation. It is dangerous. It's designed to destroy tissue. And yet people, have no hesitation about it. Like that's just what you do. And then you want to take a low dose one to see what's wrong. So you can actually help them. Nope, not doing that. And and you can see it really is not based on any sense of reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so we're, we're, 
we're in this battle and, and, you know, I'm hoping that we, we've done something here to help in one direction. Uh, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes too with, um, I'm a part of a, a group that's, um, uh, composed of people involved in chiropractic, uh, you know, in Canada and then, and on the East coast and in other places. And a lot of people who are technique oriented people, chiropractic technique oriented people that use x-rays and, and we're studying the ways in which we can, um, kind of get the truth out there and get education out there because there's a lot of uh, misinformation that's being put forth. Um, I just think, like you said, you know, people don't like to change their, their ideas, even if their ideas are not rooted in truth. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I think it's a great conversation. It's one that uh, needs to be had more uh, in the chiropractic circles because um, whether we realize it or not, there are people having conversations about how they're going to get rid of our x-rays. So we need to be having conversations and be using science to support why we are going to keep them. So exactly. thank you so much for coming on and do that, doing that. Yeah, thanks for doing the podcast. I appreciate your your efforts out there to, uh, to spread uh, information to people who need it. And uh, it's a... It's a good service you have there. Well, thank you so much. We'll definitely talk to you again. <laughs> Thanks okay. so much. Thanks. Take care. You too. Uh -huh. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Lopes for joining us. Our research team does a great job of validating what we do and defending our right to do it. If you're not a member of the GCSS, I would encourage you to do so. It is our membership that enables us to continue this legacy of clinical scientific research. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Oh, 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 oh.